Welcome to the Virtual Power Teams podcast, the number one podcast for working remotely and building powerful virtual teams. My name is Peter Ivanov, international keynote speaker and author of the book Virtual Power Teams, translated in six languages. Tune in every Tuesday for the very latest in virtual leadership or visit my website peter-ivanov.com. We have an exciting guest, Mark Buckley. Uh, Mark is a friend of mine, but uh, more so, he is an advocate for the United Nations. He's a resilient futurist, so with an emphasis on both, on resilience and on future. Um, he has a great bunch of exciting projects that he works on making the work the world a better place and making the world a place that can sustain us and our kids and the next generations. Uh, he's an author, a speaker uh, like Leonardo da Vinci in person. Uh, but before any further ado, um, let me pass to Mark. In fact, I'll share just how we met. That's, that's typical. It was, it was a TEDx talk in Hamburg. And we've met there and all of a sudden it was like a love from the first sight. It must have been four or five years ago. Um, and uh, I just saw the depths in the Mark's eyes and we had a chat. And since then we've been on a various forums as speakers. Uh, we attended MLOVE, which is a mobility futuristic forum and uh, you name it <laughs> in a different uh, countries, locations. Uh, but more so, Mark always inspired me with his strong why and his strong uh, vision for a better and sustainable world. So, Mark, welcome. Please tell us who you are and what you do. Thanks so much, Peter. I appreciate uh, uh, being able to be on your podcast and speak to you today. So it's a sheer pleasure. And it, it is true. We are good friends. And uh, we've known each other since 2015, I believe, is when when we first around that time and and I've seen each other many times and and I've appreciated your friendship and, and what you do and so I really am honored to be here. A little bit about me and I, I could I, I hate to talk about myself because it's really not about me. It's about the message. But um, I do quite a lot of different things and and that is because I take a systems view approach to life. And that means I see uh, complexity science. I see that everything in the world around us is made up of complex systems and systems are everywhere. And that in order to solve our global grand challenges uh, and human suffering and really get us well into a nice, resilient, desirable futures that we all want to attain, um, you have to take a systems view approach to life. And so for, for many people, it's like, wow, Mark does a lot of different things. He's doing this over here. He's doing that over there. Uh, but they all tie to this bigger uh, systems view of life and are, are really all moving in the same direction. And that's why resilient uh, futurist is really how can we uh, attain a future one without human suffering, global grand challenges that is good for our children, our grandchildren, for future generations, desirable to live in where we're, we're not walking around in spacesuits or gas masks or oxygen masks, but we're enjoying nature and life and have abundance and resources and uh, relationships and, and things that we need to thrive and survive in the future without, and, and, and mainly, in harmony with our ecosystem, with our earth and, and the biome of the earth as an integral part. And so because of that, I, I come from a long background of entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship. I've owned numerous companies and been involved in um, several family companies. Uh, thank goodness on both sides of my uh, family, my father's side, my father's American, my mother's side is, is German and, and, uh, and her family is all German or European. And um, so I've been very fortunate and blessed to be in some wonderful family companies and to see that uh, business romance or that business romantic that Tim Leberecht talks about, or, you know, that regenerative re, uh, organizations that uh, Frederick Laloux talks about. Um, there's so many beautiful things uh, in this world. And so 
being able to work with people you love that are family uh, uh, is a beautiful thing. And I've taken that philosophy in everything that I do. I work on five major projects with the United Nations, obviously the Sustainable Development Goals, but on uh, Earth School, um, Digital Ecosystem for the Earth. I work on uh, Climate Change Coalition. And, and the one that I'm really most proud of is called Resilience Frontiers. And it's the next iteration that comes after the Sustainable Development Goals, a roadmap for from 2030 to 2050. Mm -hmm. And it could be the Resilience Development Goals or uh, the Resilience Goals, but it's uh, something that we started with the United Nations back in uh, February of 2019 to begin the process to be ready by 2030. Um, what does that look like? And so there was a lot of tools like backcasting, forecasting, systems dynamic modeling, uh, foresight modeling. We worked with UNESCO's Real Miller and his foresight modeling tools in the literacy labs. We worked with Future IO and Harold and his team on some moonshot thinking and principles and, and canvases. And um, so, uh, and, and I just really enjoy that. And then I, I'm an editor at large with uh, Innovators Magazine and 1.5 Media, and I've worked with them as well with uh, the United Nations and with the World Economic Forum and the European Union on reporting and interviewing people and discussing what are the things that we need in the future to reach these resilient, desirable futures that are needed for humanity to um, eliminate our suffering and our global grand challenges. And then uh, uh, two last things, and then I'll, I'll, I'll shut up and, and my introduction will be done. It's really uh, the World Economic Forum. I'm part of the expert uh, network member of, of the World Economic Forum in five different areas, climate uh, change, social innovation, innovation, agriculture, seafood, food and beverage industries, and I speak about that, I write about that, I go to Davos every year, I, I attend digital Davos and, and will be in Singapore this year in August, which has been moved a few times. And then at Davos, I usually run an innovation hub where I present uh, innovations that solve global grand challenges like $1 eyeglasses or um, solar sanitation or malaria testing devices present them at the world stage for innovators and, and the country leaders to take back to their countries. And then the last thing is I'm a global uh, food reformist and I'm uh, getting ready to publish um, another book that's called Menu B and Pe uh, People and Planet Food Saving Solutions, but it's all about global food reform. It's talking about uh, old practices uh, such as um, permaculture or re uh, regenerative organics or um, um, different new innovations around cellular agriculture, precision fermentation methods and tools that we can use to reach the future without uh, having big issues around human suffering and global grand challenges in the food industry. And so in a nutshell, that's some of the things that I do. Uh, I, I, it's more than enough, I think. <laughs> Amazing. Never witnessed such a long intro and so much rich content compressed, you know, World Economic Forum and author and editor and United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. You must be very busy, M M Mark, and I know for a fact you are. Let me ask you uh, why you do what you do. And I've heard you're strong. You were about to feed billion people. So please, Shed some light on your why. Why are you taking so much projects and so much initiatives? Why you do that? Yeah, um, so why comes from Simon Sinek and it's really your, your why and your purpose for existing. And, and mine is really to empower billions of global citizens to live an adaptive lifestyle of health and sustainability within the safe operating spaces of our planetary boundaries. And like I told you in the intro, I do that in numerous different ways. Billions of people are a lot to reach. And so how do, how do you do that? Well, you have to speak, you have to write, you have to create content and videos. You have to be actively engaged every single day to reach those audiences. So I've uh, been, had the fortunate ability to speak in 
front of hundreds of thousands of people at a time. I've been able to have books and, and publications that have reached, you know, millions of people. I've been involved in projects that have involved millions of people. And so that's how, that's how you do it. I, I must confess, I'm still away from reaching even 1 billion people yet, but I uh, am not giving up. And, and to answer your question, I'm uh, very disciplined. I jump out of bed. I don't have a boss who I don't punch a clock, but I, even on the weekends, I, I, I tend to work. I have a nice work-life balance, but I literally jump out of bed and uh, almost am frustrated when I have to go to bed at night, uh, especially if I don't get all the things done on, on my task list, because I just love what I do. I love reaching the people that I reach. I love the messages that I speak about. I love our planet. I love food. Um, and so it's, it's, I don't see it as work. I see it as a sincere passion, a pleasure, and I really enjoy it. And sure, I have some days where there's frustrating moments and that, but, but I think the discipline of having structure and organization in your day for me is freedom. I, I, I on those days where I've had bad times or had a headache or wasn't feeling well and was not able to do that, I actually not only felt worse because I was sick, but I felt worse because uh, more trapped and confined and controlled than when I had structure, got things accomplished, I felt so free. And so I believe that discipline is a form of freedom. Fantastic, fantastic. So um, we, usually invite in this podcast people who are from the corporate environment you know senior leaders leading global teams and so on now you're bringing a unique perspective because you are involved in the united nations projects you are involved in the world economic forum so you are involved with global leaders and driving initiatives where people do not belong to um, the same company they don't get salary they're on a on a mission uh, can you tell us what are the key success factors for uniting, for leading such global teams on a voluntarily on a noble goal? Sure, I'd, I'd love to answer that. I, just to, to clarify, I, I want to let you know that uh, I didn't start out at the executive level or uh, you know, it, somehow at the top of the hierarchy. Uh, you know, I've had management positions. I've had uh, basic labor positions before. I, I'm... I'm uh, turning 51 years old this year. And I've been around for quite some time. And, and one, one thing I definitely learned in all my family companies um, from my family is that you, you don't start at the top barking orders at people. You start at the bottom and learn the business. You learn what you need to do and how to integrate in an organism and a team, understand why and how and what you're doing and what the roadmap is, is of where you're going, what the mission and vision of that organization is. And, and so <clears throat> I not only have I been in very entry level positions and had to work my way up to management or executive positions and lead teams, um, I've learned that what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a manager and, and how you can do that in a way that is very resilient, very sustainable, very effective. And, and um, so I've had a lot of great leaders and, and uh, examples, mentors over the years who've, who've given me those things. I've also had some mentors that were virtual mentors that are passed away, but have written books uh, like Napoleon Hill or Jim Rohn or many other motivational managers and coaches that that teach you the fundamental principles of good business and of uh, interaction social interactions and so we can talk on that as well but to answer your question on on this higher level thing is is one of the projects are uh, uh, really excited about was this resilience frontiers that started in 2019 in Songdo, Korea. Mm -hmm. It's the next iteration after the sustainable development goals. And it was just the beginning of starting a workshop to do moonshot thinking, foresight, uh, future literacy, and uh, backcasting systems dynamic modeling to start the process of what is needed um, to, to create a moonshot or a roadmap from 2030 to 2050. And so we gathered uh, 200 um, country delegates and non-country -dele delegates 
in Songdo, Korea. There was uh, Ban Ki-moon and other high-level UN dignitaries and officials there. And it was uh, instigated by the UNFCCC. That's the framework for climate conferences, climate change conferences. And um, <clears throat> they just brought together all the indigenous wisdom and all the wisdom uh, that was needed and the talents from UNESCO's Real Miller uh, Future Literacy Labs to kind of come together as global citizens from all over the world, all different types of languages uh, in the United Nations to say, hey, okay, uh, how, how do we figure out what the right, mo uh, right roadmap and method is to, to reach that future? And so it was really extremely interesting to, to be part of that and be part of a very diverse team. There was lots of facilitators or were lots of people organizing each of the groups and uh, interactions between the groups to find out how do we set up that framework and how many different frameworks. And it was all recorded. There was uh, probably hundreds of thousands uh, of uh, documents that came out of this from each individual and table and group on this process to, to uh, evolve that. And then there were some pillars and some frameworks set up and it was passed on in uh, November um, 2019 at the COP25 in Madrid to all the interagencies of the United Nations for them to play a part in this and to take it and develop it even more on their internal agencies. And then at the, in Madrid, there was a Resilience Frontiers Lab booth, which is unprecedented, where people could stop by, speak about the future, speak about what's needed after we've reached the Sustainable Development Goals. And it was a real collaboration to deal with diverse cultures, diverse languages, diverse uh, forms of thought as far as indigenous people or people from developing company, uh, countries representing people in desperate need um, that wasn't this Western world type of culture or developed country type of thinking. And there's this unique um, wording. It comes from uh, Kate Raworth, who is the economist who did the donut or does the donut economics. And she calls them weird societies. And weird is an acronym for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic societies. And um, it's absolutely true. We have these weird uh, societies that um, don't have any idea what it's like to come from a developed country. They're not thinking as, uh, as global citizens on how we can live on a world, on a planet that works for everyone. And in this lockdown period, it's really interesting because most uh, organizations, most companies, most countries and cities, they've come to the realization that we're all on the same planet and we need to learn how to work together and by working together remotely in teams and, and, and uh, or even present, we will go much further. We will fix our problems. Amazing. It sounds very exciting to be part of this global movement contemplating so far ahead uh, what to be done and you've mentioned several times backcasting you know imagining the future and i love the challenges because diversity is uh, something which happens in, in virtual teams multicultural but now these weird societies if you go on a global scale and try to resolve a really global challenges you have to tackle as you just said not just the different ways of thinking but completely different paradigms coming from the weird society, the wealthy and rich and democratic, and then uh, the, the kind of now emerging uh, countries. Let me, you mentioned several times moonshots. Um, what is a moonshot is a, is a symbol of, you know, a great goal, something which is really outstanding, amazing, and un un unimaginable. What is different? And you've been part of such projects and you just explain one of what is different when you go for a moonshot compared to the usual one or five years corporate goals? What is different there? Quite a bit is different. So it's, it's the, the really long-term vision. It's the generational wisdom and knowledge and, and, and vision of a company that um, 
sustains and brings your company, your organization well into the future to have enough resources, have enough money to pay your employees, have employees and, and the actual resources to continue making your product or, de or deliver your service. And especially in this pandemic, we've seen that a lot of organizations just were not prepared and uh, had to shut down, sorry to say, and also did a lot of revamping to say, hey, boy, how do, how do we do this now? Our employees are at home. There's some new models. And, and, and really what I mean by moonshot thinking, it's um, only happened twice before in, in our history and, and kind of a, a, a third way uh, most recently, and that is the Mar Mars shot. It's not the moonshot anymore. It's the Mars shot. But the first one was John F. Kennedy saying we're uh, one, in one country, basically saying we're going to put some men on the moon. And this is our goal, our vision, vision and our ambition. And it was one country and a couple thousand uh, people and then a couple other partner countries that kind of helped coordinate with communications and things um, to get a man on the moon. And, and they did it. And it was uh, considered a moonshot. And then... Um, Google, when they came out with their innovations and their thinking, they came up with the term moonshot and, and, and defined it as a way of thinking on how to create corporations and companies, organizations, nonprofits that will be around in the future that will do great, big, innovative things that will change humanity. We recently experienced um, the world's biggest and first ever global moonshot, one that's a world moonshot. And that was in September 25th, 2015 um, at the United Nations. It was the date that um, we passed the Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And on that day, 197 countries came together for the first time ever in history and agreed upon a roadmap, a moonshot, to get us safely to December 2030. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a moonshot way out in, in time with targets, indicators, actions, monies uh, needed to be done and acted upon in order to keep our planet below 1.5 degrees of warming. And <clears throat> what most people don't understand is this 17 sustainable development goals came before the Paris Agreement or the 2030 agenda. And that was a little bit later in December and, or in, in November in um, Paris at the COP21, when COP stands for Conference of the Parties, uh, where the world said uh, initially we're gonna try to stay at two degrees of warming, but then all these countries came together and said, you know what, we need to go a little bit extra to 1.5 degrees. And so our world uh, did it, but I want you to understand and all of your listeners, it is the world's first ever global moonshot. And it's a historical precedence that never had before has happened in human history. I want you to think about it. 197 countries, delegates, pol politicians, people representing those countries came together and agreed on a roadmap, a, a safety net, a plan to get us safely to December 2030 uh, of 1.5 degrees morning, uh, of warming and laid out the roadmap, the plan, the targets, the indicators, the way to do that, the money is needed to do that. And we did it. If you know anything about politicians, delegates, countries, it's hard enough for two of them to decide where they're gonna go eat lunch together or, or some trade deal or agreement, let alone oh, 197 say, nope, we're gonna do this. We need to do this for humanity. And a lot of people don't know about it. A lot of people haven't heard about it or what it is. And uh, I know your daughter has, yeah, your daughter's been involved in, in the UN and some other uh, very groundbreaking things ar around climate. But yeah, uh, that, that's what a moonshot is. And, and there's some actual <clears throat> wonderful news it's not anything new. It's systems thinking. It's foresight modeling. It's backcasting. It's a. It's um, uh, something that we've actually even gone beyond. Like I mentioned, there is this new thing, the Mars shot, and the new space race that we're seeing from 
Blue Origin from Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, uh, SpaceX, and, and many others who are Virgin Galactic who are in the space race. Um, but just during the pandemic, we made some milestones. We put the first privatized uh, uh, transport of human beings uh, on the ISS space station. And we've launched numerous satellites and preparations just in, I think it's in two days. Uh, I might be wrong, but I believe it's in two or three days will be the first landing on, uh, or the second landing on Mars, another Mars rover. So there's some really new moonshots happening, but we've actually gone beyond moonshot thinking into what we call um, slingshot effect or the gravitational assist of humanity, where humanity, if they pull together on one mission, one objective and goal, and they work on it, we can take the gravitational pull of humanity and slingshot us, which is called the slingshot effect, uh, at a much faster spe uh, speed uh, in space. And they use it with satellites, but there's a way that we can use that same formula, that same thinking, and you're a mathematician here on Earth to use that gravitational pull of culture and humanity here on Earth to slingshot us into those futures without human suffering, with equality, without uh, uh, global grand challenges and environmental problems. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, thanks for, for sharing also on this moonshot. Um, I'm sure many listeners will, will find out many uh, of the big kind of words and, and themes in the United Nations now brought in more tangible manner. Um, Tell me, you work on many global uh, teams, um, and I like the way you describe it in my new book, Power Teams Beyond Borders. It's really beyond any borders, beyond the gravity field of the Earth, as you say, moonshot, Mars shot, or beyond any organizational boundaries. So people get together, unite, being inspired by a common vision, and really go for unimaginable things. But just uh, for our listeners, from all your experiences with global teams on these large moonshot missions, what was your most exotic, let's say, experience? Something that, you know, a little story perhaps, which uh, um, can give an insider view to our listeners. Sure. I have, I have a bunch of them. I'm, I mean, almost... Um, every week there's, there's a new exciting uh, story coming about. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one moonshot um, that uh, just emerged as a unique, unique... Ideas, if you have taken part, that would be great, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, un, a unique story that just emerged just recently. So um, Winston Churchill... Um, and this is, goes back a little bit, wrote... wrote um, Type of an article or yeah I would say an article or a message it was called 50 years hence not quite a book not quite a report but kind of like an article or a statement or a vision and he was talking about you know 50 years into the future and um, in there he talked about the different things that we need to do on agriculture the different types of way we need to treat animals and have food and health and and things like that it was uh it, it was it was a real neat paper, but it was also very futuristic, kind of like a lot of people are like, whoa, this is, you know, prediction. This is crazy out there. I, I work with a lot of food companies. I'm a foodie. I, I'm trying to reform the entire global food system. And when I when I say that, what 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 does that mean? I I believe that the big the biggest human sufferings. Do you need to get that? All right, the biggest human sufferings and problems that we've experiencing in our world for environmental problems, um, yeah, of course they come from the oil, coal and gas, the fossil fuel industries, but those aren't the number one ways. The number one ways really have to tie to food, how we produce food, how we make food, how we waste food and the many complicated systems of the whole food systems. And so I started working with a company called the Left Farms uh, they're the future of meat, so to say. They um, produce what's called cellular agriculture or what some people might know as lab-based meats. 
Um, it's not the lab base that you would expect or envision, you know, it's not sci too sci-fi. And uh, when I, I, I joined them shortly after they were founded, uh, um, one their CEO and founder is uh, Didier Toubier. And he heard me speaking at an, at an event. A matter of fact, it was a Nuga food tech. It was Europe's largest food tech uh, conference. And I was speaking there at iForm, which was for the deal, the Deutsche Institute for Lebensmittel. They had asked me to speak about global food reform and what are the innovations. And, and Didier anyway heard me speak and, and we hit it off and we got talking about some of the things he's been working on. He's a, he's a wonderful man and uh, is in Israel. And they asked me to be on their sustainable advisory board. Well, when we first got together and, and met and, and started this thing, they had, had produced a thin cut piece of steak. And it was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Asia or are familiar with kind of the, the, the foes or the types of soup dishes or the, the thin cut steak dishes in Asia that they, they have these little, you know, very thin cut pieces of meat and a lot of their foes and dishes and foods and, and stir fries and that. And that's the equivalent of what they came up with but it was done off of cellular agriculture. What that is, is they call it cultivated or cultured meat or cultivated meat. What they do is they take a cell from a, a living cow or a bovine. Um, it doesn't hurt the cow at all. It's not fetal bovine serum. It's uh, that, you know, that does hurt the cow. It's from, it's a very non-invasive, non-intrusive way to take a cell from a, a cow and it continues to live. Um, uh, that doesn't harm the animal at all. And it's not a ge genetically modified meat or any uh, weird Frankenstein stuff going on with that. And they take it and, and they put it uh, into a bioreactor. Mm -hmm. And within three weeks, three weeks, yeah. maximum six weeks, they can grow an entire thing cut uh, steak wow. out of that. So it's amazing. Yeah. But that, here, here's the moonshot. Here's what just happened. Last week, they just grew an entire uh, ribeye steak, an entire ribeye steak, not thin cut, thick, juicy, big steak, six week process. And the way they were able to do it is with their original technologies, patented innovation, but they combined it with a scaffolding and a 3D printer. So they did plant-based materials, to, um, uh, matter to go in to 3D print, print the scaffolding to then merge with the cells that they take from the cow and then they let it grow into this full thick scaffoldy piece of steak and uh, I haven't had the chance to try the steak um, but I hear it is amazing they they're the first company to grow a full uh, stake in outer space on the ISS space station. And they're also the first company to grow a full stake in such a short amount of time. If you imagine a regular stake, how many gallons of water and food and emissions and things go into that and how much uh, time it takes. It takes years to get that and not all the cow or the bovine is, is used. And they just sustainably did that process uh, in a much different way and where, where it can be local. And, and that, for, that for me is just one, one of the stories. But I mean, I have a thousand of other stories from indigenous cultures and other things that, that are, are like that. But that's some, probably the most recent and exciting one just happened last week. <laughs> Amazing. So six weeks for a ribeye steak in a very sustainable way. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Mark. Now, you are a resilient futurist. What is your diet? Tell us, what are you having every day? Or well, I, 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 honestly, I mainly eat plant-based. And I used to be vegan, very strict vegan for many years. Um, uh, and then my traveling, my speaking engagements really stepped it up where I was like, uh, honestly, traveling three to four times a week. So there was one year um, that I had over 219 events. Um, I was on, on the road constantly. And during that time, it's really hard to, 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 to eat vegan and to eat healthy. And 
the the most important thing in those situation is my health and my mental stability and and that I get all the vitamins, nutrients, and things for my body. And it just wasn't possible. So I switched to uh, more of vegetarian and uh, rare occasional meat eater, um, may, not red meats, but uh, mainly chicken uh, I, I would have on occasion um, at, at that time. But before that, I was, uh, was vegan for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm, I'm mainly plant-based and uh, doing a lot of different uh, experimenting. I'm also a uh, uh, not using sugars or gluten. So I do a lot of gluten-free, I avoid sugars. I'm trying some new uh, things out there that, that are available and really doing a lot of new cooking and new experimenting on, on things. For me, the most important thing is uh, first and foremost taste. And then the second is the, the environmental aspect of those products. So how far do they have to travel to get here how are they produced? What kind of a chemicals, pesticides, aromas, flavorings, or things are in there? I don't want any of that stuff if possible. And so um, that, that's sometimes hard. And that's also a reason how, how and why uh, from many years ago, why I got onto the bandwagon of that we need to globally reform our food systems because it's having such a big impact first and foremost on human health. The products that we eat nowadays have very little mineral and vitamins, nutritional value because they're so highly processed. Plus they have an ecological footprint that's out of this world. You know, we're shipping meats and foods from all over the world with, with big ways because of the way we produce them is very inefficient. And uh, I just saw that there's a big opportunity uh, for the world to change how we produce. But I would say pretty much a, a plant-based. So I've been uh, making a lot of uh, gluten-free banana nut bread without butters and without eggs and, 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 and that I make uh, um, my own fruit leather. So I do a lot of uh, different fruit leathers where uh, uh, don't put any sugars or flavorings in that just take the raw uh, sugar after peeling or uh, the fruit after peeling it. And then just the natural fructose sugars in there and, and that and um, I drink a lot. I, I drink extremely a lot, do a lot of juicing and smoothies, but um, it's really the, the big, biggest thing. And I, th- I need to mention it because you brought it up. It's really an important part. Um, with climate, with environment, there's this thing that uh, was actually uh, um, come up with by the uh, fossil fuel industry, uh, oil, coal, and gas industry where they're trying to get our personal consumption and our personal habits and beliefs of how we eat and what we do to to get us to fight against each other that this environmental and climate problem is our problem because of the way we eat or the way we consume. We play a part or a little role in that process, but it's a very minuscule role because if those products didn't exist and if they weren't first produced in that bad way, the, the, the problem wouldn't even exist. Uh, uh, what we've been given more choices and food has been turned into a commodity. And so there's a lot of people say, well, you know, I was one of the first 50 people trained by Al Gore. And the unique thing about Al Gore is he really started the big climate movement. And you were also trained by Al Gore in Berlin, Germany. And, and um, so people say, well, he's overweight and he flies around and he uh, lives on a big ranch and uh, it was originally a, a tobacco ranch and then it went to Angus beef ranch. And so he's not walking the talk and he uses a lot of energy and he flies around and he wears cowboy boots and yada, yada. And so what they try to do is because of that, because of Al Gore, because they don't like the way he eats or the way the and the family he grew up in, they're trying to make that it his problem, or that they can't listen to the real factual truth that he has to say, because based in reality, because they don't like how he looks, or because something he's doing, and they say, well, that negates everything positive and real science based that he's talking about, and it, it's a really bad thing that through food sometimes we get into this wrong discussion of where we need to go. There's a much bigger discussion on how we solve these problems and do that. And 
And so that I always have to throw that in on how I speak or, or talk about food. But to answer your question short, is that mainly plant-based, but I could go on because I'm a foodie, so I could talk about that forever. I eat very well. I'm not suffering at all. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for sharing. And it's been a very inspirational meeting Al Gore and all these people in Berlin. Huge hall. And um, it's been, you know, a, a great atmosphere. And uh, I personally... Uh, met so many people that we are still in touch, driving the climate uh, reality agenda, but also cooperating on many other projects. So thanks for introducing me. And I guess that must have been one of the triggers for my daughter also to kind of get it on the next level to what, I, what I'm doing there. Now, what, um, what would be your number one advice? If you have to give one tip to people leading global teams, global projects, having your rich experience, what would that be? I'm going to need to think about that for a second. One, the top way. I, I really believe that it would be giving everybody a voice at the table. So um, as you can tell, I I speak a lot and, and that is, but it's important to be a good listener and that everybody at the table gets a, gets a voice. So you can have global teams and, and uh, people will show up from, from different places, but they never say anything. It's like they're there and you see their monitors on or their pictures there or their image, but nothing's ever said. And so you don't know, did they buy into the project or buy into what you guys are trying to solve or what you're trying to do, or they just, they just want to hurry and get back to their work because, and just there because they have to be there. And so there are some golden nuggets to be had by getting everybody's voice at the table and uh, kind of collaborating, unifying, coming together as one organism. So when, when I say organization or group or team, global team, I see it as an organism, a living organism that's all interconnected. Everybody plays their part. And so it's important that we get all those parts and perspectives because there are some things, as I mentioned with the, the weird societies thing, there are some things that people in different parts of the world, although they're in the same company or organization, are experiencing or culturally may see differently that would be a, an important part for the global project or the global vision of your organization or whatever you're working on to have that aspect to make sure that it works for everyone, to make sure that it's something that uh, is very successful well into the future and not just for a few Yes. And just for a, a certain amount of people. And so I, I really like that. Uh, give everybody a voice at the table and make sure that everybody's kind of there and participating and saying something. That, that's a culture. That's environment. That's the setup that you do. And you work that very well in your book. Uh, um, so that's, that's great. Having everybody having a voice at a table. And really, this is, this is so crucial. Um, and um, Google discovered that in their project Aristotle, they analyzed what their high-performing teams have in common. And they have two big insights. First was that they have an equal share of talking. So they really, if the team is already well smoothed and performs, even the extroverts shut up at some point in time and the introverts would speak up and so on. So it was one of the discovery. But if you gather a big global team, perhaps you have to moderate it in the right way and really make sure Everyone coming from with his unique perspective, unique talents, they can shine. They have their space and time to shine. Uh, so that's that's a really good advice. And, and the second aspect, now that we go, Corona forced us to be virtual, to collaborate virtual, and even some of the moonshots have to continue operating in a virtual environment. Again, we don't have to be shy because we are on the screen. Again, make sure everybody's having voice at the table. Make sure you invite them, praise them, make sure they really bring whatever they have. Can I give you an example to that? Please? There's this, uh, there's this great TED talk, but it's also, he's, he's a wonderful educator and professor uh, from, I believe he's from India or Pakistan and it's called the hole in the wall project. And it's, uh, I'm sure you've heard about it, but this, gen this uh, gentleman put, 
put a computer in a, basically in a hole in a wall in some very poor and developed places where the language on, on the computer wasn't the language that they spoke. There was no instructions. And these children uh, and even other people, elderly and other people came up to this computer in a very short amount of time they got it to work. They were innovative. They clicked around, they explored, they got it to work. Then they got out on the internet um, and then they hooked up, they got the camera to work and they were able to have not only this effect of, of, of learning, but then they had this extra la layer of effect and it's called the grandmother effect that um, these kids that maybe were shy or had never seen a, a, a uh, very many white people before in their lives or just different cultures. We're now all of a sudden calling these grandmothers or these elderly people around the world. And just the simple fact that there was someone else on the screen on the other side, willing to listen to them, to shut up and just listen, give them a time and then say, oh, that's so beautiful. You've done such a good job. And and then give them encouragement and some kudos and some, some good feedback that they just bloomed and thrived and they came out. And, and I, I don't wanna say, say adults and organization are children, but we all need to be socially recognized. We all need to be felt and loved and, and felt like the teams or the company, the organization we work for as part of a family, that they care about us, that they want it, they value our work, our judgments, and what we do. Um, otherwise, we're just a number. We're just there. We just want to work our time, go home. We don't want to forget about it. And how, how much job dissatisfaction is there in the world today? We need to change that. We need to change that paradigm. And that's part of this listening and, and and interacting with people and, and giving them some work, treating them as a human being, not micromanaging them and punching in and out and looking over the Let them thrive and flourish or, um, or find a better task for them to do to give them that ability to thrive and flourish. And so uh, that's kind of my advice on these, these deals on uh, where you can really just make things beautifully bloom into to the future where they need to go. Fantastic, beautiful story. Thanks for sharing. Now, tell us, um, you partly answered with this like uh, ribeye steak within six weeks, but if you could briefly explain us uh, what is the future of food? What should we expect there? How do you see the future of food? Um, I, I see it as global food reform. So currently our, our global food systems are, are horrific. So there's all sorts of numerous problems and, and most people are unaware of it. So we're so distanced from, from food. Most, most children nowadays uh, don't even know, you know, where tomato comes from, where a cashew nut comes from, where, you know, they have their distance from food and how food is made that, you know, some, some don't even know that, you know, hamburgers come from certain cows and certain beef and it comes from, from you know, Angus cows and, and that um, there's just a distance from our food, which is insanity because um, in, in our world, we need energy to, to move and thrive. And the basic of human needs is the energy that drives our body. It's a called a caloric unit or uh, which is a me measurement of energy. And that's the basic, one of the basic measurements of energy in our world. And I'm not saying go count calories with what you eat. I'm saying that um, our body requires food and water in order to run our engine, to keep our body temperature regulated. And so the basic need of human beings is food and that's how we continue to walk and grow and how we regulate our body temperature, don't freeze to death. And um, today we've distanced ourselves from food. We don't know where it's made, who's made it, just as long as we eat it and we get it, that's good. But that's kind of like buying a car, not knowing if you're, where you're gonna go to get gas to fill it up. That's like buying an iPhone or a cell phone and not knowing, uh, buying a charger or knowing how you're gonna load it up with energy so that it works or not having a SIM in, in your card so that you can even call someone because yeah, you've got a phone, it's charged up, but you don't 
have the the sim in there that works and and so for me i want to know where my food comes from i want to know that i have it every day because i love to eat and i need my body temperature regulated i need it to drive me to give me energy to to move and function around uh, and even more important than just that knowledge of of that it's that it's our fuel for our body is this big factor that a lot of people kind of, uh, except for very wealthy investors or, uh, or very people very savvy in the financial markets. In 2008, the entire world experienced a financial crash and financial uh, instability. And at that point in time, all that that was being invested in real estate or in tech models or uh, financial um, systems or technical uh, investments, all switched to the food investment. And anything to do with the food systems, that's where the investments were because it was the safest bet and it was the one that produced the most returns. Any of those companies that invested in the food systems somewhere um, still to today, and especially during the pandemic, have thrived and flourished um, because it's the safest bet because everybody needs to eat. And especially during a pandemic, food and that is really great. But what happened when that occurred in 2008? Food went from something that gives us energy to a commodity. And so by turning it into a commodity, we've devalued food, we've cheapened food, which means those people who now run the food system are only concerned that it's a commodity and makes them money. And so that means that they don't care where it's produced, how it's produced, but it needs to be done cheap as possible so that when they sell it, the biggest profit margins in there so that they can get their investment back, correct? Absolutely. And that's when we cheapen food, we cheapen life. And that has just continued to get worse until now, making food a commodity. And that problem uh, really um, created a big hiccup, a big issue in our world for us, even to today, because it turned food into a commodity. So we're adding chemicals, pesticides, flavors, aromas. We're transporting it around the world. If you think about it, um, here in Germany, I can go to almost any market in, in, in my area and I can buy a mango for one euro, maybe at the, at the most two euros. There's no way on this earth that a mango from Vietnam or from Thailand could cost two euros. Not the time, the market, the labor, the growth, the water, the years that it took, the shipping, the transport from Thailand or Vietnam to here. And then you only sell that's not the true cost. That's not the fair trade. So that money has to be coming out of someone's pocket, that time, that, that natural capital, that true resources coming from somewhere. I personally have a problem. I have an addiction. I love cashew nuts. I have always loved them since a little child. Uh, I've just loved cashew nuts, love to suck on them, love to bite them. And, and uh, you know, for, for hours, well, you know, I, I, there was times I remember, you know, it's been probably 20 years now where I'd take a whole hand of cashew nuts and just pop them in my mouth, chew them up. And I was happy and just content for maybe 10 minutes. I didn't realize that entire handful of cashew nuts, that's an entire tree. And I bought the bag well, nowadays, I can go to, to one of the grocery stores around here and for one euro to maybe three euros max, I can buy an entire bag that maybe has four full cashew trees in that bag and eat it in one sitting. That is thousands of gallons of water, thousands of dollars of marketing, transport, labor. That's an entire tree, sunlight and energy, transportation, marketing. And there's no way you can sell it for that. How, how can that be? somewhere someone is getting cheated and and the, i'll tell you who's getting cheated the farmers are getting cheated but our earth is getting cheated of that natural capital and those resources our resources are not being allowed to regenerate and grow back fast enough to compensate that type of consume mm -hmm. if you charge a fair wage and you pay the total environmental cost all the greenhouse gases 
that are emitted in the process of transporting that and making that, the water that goes into that, all the resources, if we were to pay that, our, our, our earth would still be in balance. And we don't think about those things. And so that's kind of, I mean, the deeper look of that. I, I hope that answers your question. Um, but that, you know, it, it's, there's nothing simple. There's no short versions uh, of, of uh, a quick pitch, a TED talk, an elevator pitch. The world also learned in 2018 that in order to solve our global grand challenges, we can no longer take the siloed or linear or lateral approach. We need to embrace complexity. We need to think in systems and we need to use complete systems to solve our global grand challenges. In 2018, all international organizations made that switch. And so when you hear the words, global food reformists, or I, I want to globally reform the entire food systems. Um, now you understand a little bit more the complexity in those systems behind what I mean by those words yeah. and the way we need to look at things. Thanks for sharing, having a system thinker with us. And I know on the other side, you have people like uh, Donald Trump and so on, which take a very simplistic view and they gather a lot of supporters. Let's not go into that, but the world is much more complex and it requires really system thinking and very diverse workforce united in order to successfully and effectively tackle these challenges. So two quick questions. One is really quick. What are you reading or listening at the moment right now? What gives you inspiration? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's quite a bit. So that, that's also with my personality. I'm currently reading five books. I usually read two books a week, but uh, I, I've currently got five uh, on my list already. And matter of fact, I have two here and two uh, uh, off on my credenza. So the one I just finished was called uh, Silo, the Zero Waste Blueprint. It's from uh, Douglas uh, uh, um, Mc... mm -hmm. uh, McMasters is how you say his name. Mm -hmm. And it's a silo, the zero waste blueprint. Mm -hmm. uh, just started this book, The Lo Local is Our Future. And uh, I'm not sure who that's from. Helena, oh yes, very wonderful woman who's been in this a long time. Helena Norbeg Hodge. And she uh, came up with an uh, ecological economy model, and as a uh, and it's all based on a local economy. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really uh, it's I, I I know about her other work. She's written a couple other books, and that's really good. And then I've got the Nova scene over there from James Lovelock. James Lovelock's over a hundred years old. He's the one that came up with the Gaia principle. Um, and matter of fact, that was just returned to me from someone that I borrowed uh, the book, lent the book out to. And, and then the donut economics, I'm going through and marking some things from Kate Robworth and uh, a couple other ones uh, that I've got another. Oh, yeah. Um, the Green, Green Swans from John Elkington. Those are kind of the five books that I'm just finishing up now. I just uh, finished up uh, yesterday another book for a podcast that I'm doing on the 18th, um, uh, it's called the Monsanto Papers. It's all about Bayern Monsanto and all the chemicals and stuff. They had uh, they lost the 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 lawsuit and had to pay two billion something dollars to the person that they lost to, and that's just one of many um, cases that they've lost of people they've hurt in our food systems and things like that. So. Uh, avid reader. Those are the things that I'm reading. We will share the links uh, of the books, uh, your top selection with our listeners and, and viewers. The Black Swan has been around as a concept. I never heard of Green Swan. Can you explain it with like a couple of sentences? So the, the Black Swan has been around for what, probably about four years now, five years. But there's also a Gray Swan. Mm -hmm. There's also... Um, a, 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 a black swan with green feathers and then there's a green swan with black feathers and then there's a green swan and there might be one, one other type of swan but but that book comes and, and his I've also read it and his other books I can't think of his name right now that comes from a different author than 
than John Elkington and his green swans, but he, um, he's read that book and he's followed that line of thinking, but there's this new emerging consciousness um, uh, that involves environmental social governance and, and businesses and ecological perspectives and the way we, we do things in, in our business and that they're emerging as be better business models. There's also been in the last five years, this enormous discussion about how do we change our business models to work more for humanity and our environment more long-term instead of GDP or capitalism, these different models. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle of um, John's, John's book is called, and I actually, have, I have that here, it was hidden under some papers, Green Swans, John Elkington. But there's this little subtitle and it says, the coming boom in regenerative capitalism. So the word in there is this about regeneration, regenerative. And, and that ties to the business model. So we hear about corporate social responsibility, environmental social governance. We talk about doing things right around sustainability. But a green swan is an organization that almost has that moonshot type of uh, feeling to it, but it's all environmentally friendly. It's all, all human uh, friendly. And it emerges almost as fast and as unique as a black swan. Um, but it emerges in a way that's very positive and good for, for our world. And, you know, I, I would say a left farms and their stake, that's a green swan. Yes. I, I would definitely say that's a green swan, especially they're, um, they're, they're crazy to make sure that they have ESG sustainability, that they do things right, that they really think everything through. They want to do circular economy and cradle to cradle, and they're not willing to make any compromises, not only not on the brand, but on the way they do things. They wanna do it right, because it can be very controversial. People are, are never thought before, you know, lab-based meat um, kind of might worry, but it's a new, new direction. And um, so that's a little bit about Green Swans. I don't know if that, that helps enough, but it's a fabulous book. And, He's, he's, he's been in the green movement for decades. He's written over 20 books um, and stuff. I'm hoping to have him on the podcast soon, but yeah. Great. So last question, because it's a virtual power teams forecast and you are a resilient futurist. What do you think is the future of virtual teams? It is the future. So not only has it been the future for, for uh, some times, but it is, we, I talk and you talk about the humans of new work. You know, what, what does work look like in the, in the future? For a lot of organizations, this is going to be a blended online and offline. Some organizations can only do uh, online physical because of the type of the, uh, uh, organization they are. But as far as uh, mid-level management and us, um, especially for international organizations, the future, instead of jumping off to go to a meeting somewhere around the world, this uh, new dynamics of how we do conferencing, how we do videos is really here to stay. It's only going to evolve more. There's gonna be more augmented realities. There's some new glasses coming out that, that are not like a VR glass that are very comfortable to, to, to use to do um, some VR in or augmented reality uh, meetings and things. And it, it's gonna feel uh, very second nature and there'll be a lot less time wasted. So I, I, I told you at the beginning of our conversation, you know, uh, how not only did all that traveling that I used to do affect my diet, I wanted to be vegan, but it was very difficult to, to, to do that when, when I would arrive somebody, somewhere at Sunday night uh, and a place where nothing was open and there was no, no good options there. So I could starve or I could eat what, what's available because there uh, is not everywhere on this earth the option to, to, to do that, to eat healthy. You have to look for it in some cases, or you'd have to pack it with me. And, and some of the cheap people that I speak for, they never packed, paid for an extra luggage weight so I could haul all my food with me uh, to go speak for them. Um, so uh, the, the real thinking about it is I spent a lot of time in taxis and the hotel 
at the conference and then repeating flying back or off to the next event. All that wasted time, not only that did that affect my, my eating habits, but it affected my family, you know, um, uh, uh, drastically affected my family. So if your family doesn't travel with you, uh, that can be a logistical nightmare and many other aspects. So it, it's a much more efficient, better way. It's more environmentally friendly. Uh, uh, there's so many benefits. But it's, it's really evolving how, how that's going to happen and occur. And I think it's a real positive thing. Uh, and, and people are going to be knocking down your door even more to uh, make sure that they're up, up to speed on the digital transformation, that they have the tools necessary, and also the cultural social skills to be able to do it and facilitate it correctly. Project management skills and the skills of the virtual power team principles, the 10 principles that... Uh, they need to do it effectively and to work with everyone. And now companies will truly be global citizens. They'll have understanding for everyone and the diversity of teams all over. Fantastic. Thank you very much for all your insights, the moonshots and the futuristic view. It's been a pleasure. Hope our listeners got some ideas also on the future and the resilient future of this planet. planet. Big virtual power hack from me to you and to the listeners. And yes, tune in next Tuesday for the next podcast. Thank Thanks you so much. Bye-bye.